is Sit Rep on BFBS. This week, riots on Britain's streets. Should the army have been brought in? Where are the military? Why don't they bring military in? You know, if there's not enough police, why doesn't the Prime Minister order the military in? And America reacts to its biggest loss of life in Afghanistan. It was a tragic day. It was a tragic loss. The campaign is going to continue. BFBS. Headlines. The Prime Minister says the whole country has been shocked by scenes of looting, violence and vandalism in cities in England. David Cameron told an emergency session of Parliament there'd be tough action against the perpetrators, with police given greater powers to ban face coverings and masks and a greater effort to tackle gangs and the rioters' use of social media. Police have been carrying out early morning raids in the hunt for looters. Scotland Yard's now arrested more than 900 people in London and charged more than 400. Magistrates' court sat through the night. Some offenders have been arrested, charged and jailed within 24 hours. In Nottingham, an 11-year-old girl who finished primary school last month admitted damaging windows and was given a referral order. Also, Apache helicopters have conducted one of their biggest missions to date over Libya. They fired Hellfire missiles around 50 miles inland, taking out a satellite and communications base manned by Colonel Gaddafi's troops. The operation lasted just 40 minutes. has been an astonishing week with rioting, looting, fires raging on the streets of our biggest towns and cities. This is criminality, pure and simple, and it has to be confronted and defeated. Why are you going to miss the opportunity to get free stuff? The prisons are overcrowded. Well, what are they going to do? Give me an, an asshole. This has been senseless violence and senseless criminality on a scale that I have never witnessed before in my career. We're here in great numbers trying to defend where we live. I mean, watching Eiffel Town get smashed up, it's terrible. We just, you know, people have had enough. As police struggle to contain the violence in London, Manchester, Birmingham and elsewhere, time and again the same question was asked. Adam lives in Croydon. Where are the military? Why don't they bring military in? You know, if there's not enough police, why doesn't the Prime Minister order the military in? I mean, there's total lawlessness here. I mean, the street out the front is an, it's, it's chaos, it really is. I couldn't believe this is happening in London. Gavin Barwell, an MP in Croydon, was open to the idea of sending in the military. I don't think anyone wants to see troops on our streets, so the first thing is to look at can we transfer police officers from other parts of the country to support the Met at this critical time. But if the advice of the police is that even doing that, they don't have sufficient bodies, then I think we've got to look at that as an option. While fellow Conservative MP Patrick Mercer, a former army officer, is opposed to sending in troops, he does want police given the power to use water cannon on rioters. They should have the, the kit and they should use them if the commander on the spot thinks that it's necessary. And I don't think that we have necessarily got to mollycoddle Englishmen because we don't mollycoddle Irishmen. But politicians have refused to bring in the military, insisting the police have the numbers and the powers needed to cope. Was that a mistake? Other countries wouldn't have hesitated to put troops on the street. On the line is Captain Doug Beatty, who's been in the army for almost 30 years and is now in the TA. Doug Beatty, the Home Secretary, said policing in Britain doesn't normally rely on military methods, but this wasn't a normal situation, was it? No, it wasn't a normal situation, but you've got to, you've got to really ask yourself the question, I mean, should we really think about bringing in the military with something which was 
actually sporadic around London and, and various other cities, um, lasted for a number of days, uh, and the police dealt with it. Now, you could ask the question at the very start, did the police have the right resources, and did they have the right tactics? Uh, and that's a question for, for the Home Office and for the police themselves. But in absolutely no way should the army have been deployed with something as, as, as localised as this. Well, in the Commons earlier, the Prime Minister set out his views about calling in the army. The acting commissioner of the Metropolitan Police said to me that he would rather be the last man left in Scotland Yard with all his management team out on the streets before he asked for army support. That is the right attitude and one I share. But it is the government's responsibility to make sure that every future contingency is looked at, including whether there are tasks that the army could undertake that might free up more police for the front line. Doug Beattie, no great appetite within the police for the army to be involved, but is there ever a situation where there's a job the army can't do, or the army can do, that the police can't? Look, I think you have to look at it, and this wasn't for now, but but maybe in the future. I mean, if we were looking at a situation where the infrastructure of this country was in danger of collapsing, um, the nuclear power was in danger of collapsing, our transport and rail networks was in uh, could collapse, then then maybe the, the military could be brought in to do key point defence, um, key point security, that is guarding such facilities to free up policemen to go and deal with the interface with the public because that's what the police are, are, are for. So there's always a role for the, for the military to help in, in the back scenes but, but we shouldn't be looking at trying to deploy them on the streets because once you've deployed them on the streets it is incredibly difficult to get them off. Now I can understand the frustration of the people who are watching this take place on the television and they see these jobs running away with televisions under their arms or setting lights to shops uh, and they just want somebody to go in with a size 10 army boot and hit them a kick or a clip around the ear uh, and use a sort of a blunt weapon to deal with this. But that's not what we should be doing with the military. We should be u- using the police to do this. It's a criminal matter and they should deal with it. Well, also joining me is Robert Fox, the Evening Standards defence correspondent. Uh, Robert, you work for a London paper. You can understand perhaps the feeling of the people in the city when they might want that size 10 boot or a clip round the ear to come from the army? Yes, so you're really asking two things. What do you do about this? And it's a knee-jerk reaction, bring in the army. I absolutely agree with everything that Doug has said. It's also incredibly difficult. I remember when the army came in for the first time in Northern Ireland. They had to reach into their historical textbooks to look at things like the 18th century legislation of the Riot Act, the use of military in support of the civil arm, it gets very, very messy and very complicated. And in practical terms, it's wonderful for our Prime Minister to say, yes, there are tasks that the military and the army can do, when he's slashing them to the bone to 82,000 with uh, a barely functional reserve to make up the slack. There's something that isn't adding up there. But what I do sense is the country at large, that's why you're getting very effective vigilantes, which we had round uh, my way, particularly from ethnic min- minorities, understanding what needs to be done. In a funny way, there's a part of Britain which seems to be ahead of the politics again here. Uh, With me in the studio is BFBS defence analyst uh, Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, the very phrase, bring in the army, uh, that frustrates you a little, I Uh, think. It's absolute nonsense, isn't it? I mean, somebody ought to sort of get in front of the Prime Minister and say, OK, Prime Minister, nice political words, but give me these answers. What military? What would they do? Where do you get them from? What are they trained to do? No, and the the military, as Bob Fox says, you know, we're talking about 69 when the, the, when the then Home Secretary, uh, Jim Callaghan, ordered the army to go uh, to enforce a Northern Ireland. It was as A to the civil power. 
if you want to put if you, if you've got a national emergency and this is not a national emergency then they talk about oh we're going to have some water cannon well, only six water cannon they're in northern line and they're not going to nip them over they're only good for taking a head-on uh, assault from a crowd these weren't head-on assaults this was guerrilla warfare you know and, and that's it and then he says we're going to take the fight to these people what fight the battle's gone they've gone and so I think that, you know, it's all politics at the moment. Rule out the army, forget the army. The army's got enough to do. So why are we even talking about it? Because there's a Sun headline saying bring in the army. That means the Prime Minister has to deal with it. He has to talk about oh, it because point. of public opinion. Sorry, Robert Fox. That's the point. It's a Sun headline. Funny enough, uh, I, I wrote a COD uh, Sun headline with a breakdown of social cohesion when I was on the steering committee for the national security strategy at the very end of the Brown regime. And I said the worst case scenario would be mob power, yob power and gob power. Very good, sort of Sun stuff. Everybody in the room laughed. And I said, well, what are you going, what are you going to do? They had no solutions. The solution is in the community. I couldn't agree more with my two colleagues, both Doug and Chris, on this. It is not a thing susceptible to a military solution, least of all the kind of military and the kind of civic history that this country has. We don't do that. Just give you an example. I know they have a halfway house with the Carabinieri and the Gendarmerie, but they ordered the Carabinieri on the streets in Naples. It produced almost as many problems as they purported to solve. Doug Beatty, a final thought from you. There's an image problem as well, isn't there? What are we, less than a year out from the Olympics? It's not what we want to see on the streets of London, uniformed uh, uh, military men? No, I mean, it's not. I mean, we don't want to see any of this before the Olympics, to be perfectly honest. But it's happened, um, and it's been dealt with, and it's been dealt with by, by the police. I mean, the, the police were able to put 16,000 police officers on the streets of London one night. I mean, the army can't even put that many into Helmand. This is a policing matter. It's a criminal matter. Let's go and arrest these jobs. Let's get them into courts. Let's get them in the jails, and, and, and let's move on. Doug Beatty, thank you very much for your time today. A real pleasure. Still to come this week, a warning about the catastrophic impact of ignoring climate change. The more our society comes under stress from these sort of events, the more likely it is that many of the things which we really cherish are going to come uh, under threat. Investigations are continuing into the loss of a U.S. Chinook in Afghanistan and America's biggest single loss of life in the country. 30 American troops, many from special forces, were killed alongside seven Afghans when the helicopter came down in Wadak province. We were outside our rooms on a veranda and saw this helicopter flying very low. It was hit by a rocket and it was on fire. It started coming down and crashed just yards away from our house, close to the river. All evidence points to the Taliban possibly using a rocket-propelled grenade. Brigadier General Carson Jacobson is a NATO spokesman. It was a tragic day. It was a tragic loss. We suffer wounded and death every day. The campaign is going to continue. We will continue to relentlessly pursue the enemy in the fight that we are taking to them. But some, like Republican Senator John McCain, fear this tragedy for America could have deeper consequences. We are going to have to address the problem that the president has created, and that is that out there there is a perception, Afghanistan and other parts of the country, of that part of the world, that America is withdrawing. That can't be good. Uh, Christopher Lee, let's start with you uh, on this topic. Obviously a tragedy, a personal tragedy for the, for the families and, and for the military, of course. What impact, if any, does it have on American strategy in Afghanistan? Probably none whatsoever. Um, the withdrawal is still on uh, for 
2014-2015, the limited withdrawal, that is. The Americans will still have 70,000 troops there at the end. But I think if we're thinking, well, you know, one Chinook goes down, and don't forget, it's not the first Chinook to go down, um, then the answer is no, it won't change the strategy. Well, we're joined now on the line by uh, Professor Michael Stathis, who's a Professor of Political Science at the University of Southern Utah. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, a tragedy, as we say, for those uh, involved. Uh, what are the wider consequences, and what's the reaction in terms of the public response in the United States? Well, this is an event that has actually struck home. Um, a fellow by the name of Jason Workman, uh, a Navy SEAL, uh, uh, actually was a graduate of our criminal justice program, uh, the program that I'm the department chair of with political science from Southern University. And uh, this has brought a new awareness to Cedar City. Uh, and uh, the, the size of the event, uh, I, I think, has, uh, has really struck a chord with the American public uh, ac across the country. And um, I, the feeling I'm getting is that uh, there is a growing sense it's time. Uh, a decision has to be made for a dramatic change uh, there, meaning it's probably time to come home. It's already clear that President Obama wants significant progress on withdrawal before he seeks re-election next year. Will this intensify that or even accelerate the timescale? I don't think so. I, I, I think that the, um, uh, the program that he had in mind uh, is already well in place. Uh, uh, if, if anything, it's not going to change it. Uh, there has been some pressure to slow that down just a little bit. But uh, I think this is going to, uh, it, the event and the combination of public pressure, I think, is going to combine to, um, uh, to just keep him on task on this. The U.S. military are quite quick to come out and say they've killed the Taliban behind the attack. Will that be enough to, to quell the critics, do you think, like John McCain? Well, Senator McCain, of all people, knows that uh, uh, in these kinds of situations, casualties, significant casualties, are going to happen. Um, but for the American public, um, this, this barely softens uh, a blow, given the fact that this is an event that has lasted over a decade now. Uh, this uh, is already the longest war in the history of the Republic, and um, there, there are no signs of uh, any major cash-in on this, uh, made no major uh, change in world events because of this investment. Robert Fox, let's just bring you in on the, on the practicalities of the attack. If it was an RPG that brought down the Chinook, where are the Taliban getting them from? Oh, well, they, they have these things because... Um, and they boasted about having enhanced RPGs. If it was an RPG, and it's still a question if, it was a very lucky shot, and it has to be said that these helicopters, which people like Chris and myself travel in very frequently, I travel in very frequently indeed in Chinooks when I'm in Afghanistan, I'm there three, four times this year, they are very vulnerable close to takeoff and landing, and it was an insertion or an extraction that was going at this time, and the guy, the guy got lucky. I say I don't agree with the professor so much. I agree more with my colleague Chris about this. I don't think it changes much because the pull-down, the drawdown already in train for U.S. forces is quite dramatic because between now and the end of 2012, it could be anywhere between 30 and 40,000 U.S. troops. So it's on the way. McCain's remark is quite obviously just playing politics, but there is a lot of politics in this. Uh, Christopher Patrick Mercer, the Conservative MP and, and former soldier, said that th there's nothing for this but to take it on the chin, to mourn the dead and to carry on. 
It's yeah. essentially right, isn't it? Yeah, right. um, um, and that's it, because there's a bigger programme involved in this. But, uh, I mean, what I'm hearing, for example, I mean, if you take a, a Chinook, it's got to be below 200 metres at least before an RPG can take it out, has a chance to. What I'm hearing is the Chinese HN5, which is a shoulder-fired uh, system, very it, it, similar, similar to the Strela 2. A lot of this stuff is coming over also from, from Iran. There's a 1,000-kilometre border uh, with, with the Iranians. And there was a group, an American group, the Seven Group Special Forces, out uh, recently along that border, and they were picking up a lot of stuff like this, and so they weren't surprised that the Taliban have got such uh, a lot of stuff like this. And some of it, of course, other, other weapons are being nicked from NATO, every time the the, uh, the 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 Taliban knock over an oil tanker, for example, they look around and see what hardware there is. Uh, Professor Stathis, a, a final thought uh, from you in terms of the public reaction. You mentioned that um, maybe the patience is getting a little thin among the public in the U.S. Very much so. Uh, this country is in the throes of uh, well, as are many communities around the world. Uh, the throes of uh, economic situations that are virtually unprecedented. And uh, I'm, I'm afraid, even with the significant loss of life here, that uh, this is a story that is going to have a very temporary shelf life. Um, that's a very hard thing to say, but uh, when you uh, look at what is happening with uh, uh, the job market uh, in the United States, when you look at the economic crisis globally and uh, on Wall Street and in hometown USA uh, down in Cedar City, um, I'm afraid Chris's uh, comment that he keeps making over and over again, it's the economy, stupid, uh, really does come into play here. And it's going to be the major political issue for, uh, for months to come. OK, Professor Michael Stathis, rather, thank you very much for joining us on the programme today. Let's um, uh, turn quickly to uh, Syria, whose Arab neighbours, it seems, have finally had enough of the violent crackdown on civilians. The Arab League's broken its silence and Saudi Arabia's king has demanded an end to what he called a death machine. Christopher, who, who really knows what's going on? What are they saying regarding Syria? If you, know what, if you want to know what's going on really in Syria you do two things. You go and talk to the Turkish intelligence people. And you also talk to the oil companies. The oil companies have got a lot at stake. They know what's going on. The latest idea that's coming out, and it's not from uh, the, the Syrians, it's from these groups, certainly the Turkish uh, uh, groups. They're getting a certain amount of pressure, an okayism, as they call it, from the Americans, and it's this. Turks put in their troops across the border into Syria to protect their border, they say. Syrians get really screwed up about this. They move for Div uh, to not necessarily fight, but to front up to the Turks. For Div is the Div that's controlled by the president's brother. The president's brother, Mahir, is the guy that's really running Syria at the moment. The insurgents, the not the insurgents, sorry, the rebels, etc., the protesters take great heart from this. It's it's stepped up. In the United Nations, in the Security Council, nobody objects to this because they'll say, Turkey, and we say, one of our NATO colleagues, is doing exactly that. So, Turks over the border, Syrians move for Div, disrupts the whole, whole operation by the President's brother. It gives the so-called protesters more chance. People are saying that's the way to get to it. Uh, Robert Fox, do you agree? Should we be far more concerned about what happens with regards to Turkey as we should Saudi Arabia? Oh, Turkey is the key player. Chris is absolutely right. And historically, 
It's had been a disputed border. It's a very important border. And Turkey is emerging now as a big swing player there. Turkey, despite everything, has managed to keep its contacts going out with Israel. It is very, very well aware of how dangerous the situation is in Syria. I think Syria is in a process of disintegration, or sorry, fragmentation or fracture, but not meltdown. And I again agree entirely with Chris. It's amazing how personal and how familiar in the sense of a family the Assad family is, because you may remember when 1982, when uh, was taken apart. It was taken apart by the president's brother again, Uncle Rifat, who's still happily in exile in France, and the strongman is Maher this time. And I, uh, if I infer something very interesting that Chris was saying, would I infer, having been very briefly in Syria at the beginning of this thing, it is too widespread, it is too deep, and it's gone on for too long for the Alawite clan of Assad to hope to be totally in control. They're, they are playing a game of very slow retreat. The military's been repeatedly warned to prepare to face a new generation of threats to our security. Cyber warfare was one of the few winners in last year's defence review and ministers are also warning environmental change could destroy the foundations on which our society is based. The Energy and Climate Change Secretary Chris Hune says the military already has contingency plans in place. In a speech to the Royal United Services Institute, he warned failure to act could have catastrophic consequences. Mr Hune described climate change as a threat multiplier. And when I spoke to him earlier this week, I started by asking him what he meant. Climate change is a threat multiplier because what it's doing is essentially taking uh, issues which are already a problem in terms of the global politics and it is making them far, far worse. Uh, so, for example, conflicts that already exist over water, and we've seen water being a seriously contentious issue between Israel and the neighbouring states, uh, suddenly could become much more serious because of uh, the way in which climate change will aggravate water shortages. And the most obvious example of that is that all of the main rivers in both China and India rise on the Himalayan plateau. That's uh, all of those rivers are feeding nearly 40% of the world's population. And the potential for conflicts over that water, given that the glaciers on the Himalayas are melting more rapidly than was previously predicted, is enormous. Are you saying there's a direct correlation between rising temperatures and our security and our safety and our ability to keep the United Kingdom safe and secure? There's no doubt about it. There's a take another a very clear link between climate change and our national security and that comes through potential migration. Uh, if we see uh, rising sea levels, rising temperatures leading to uh, big deltas like the Nile Delta, the Mekong Delta, these sort of areas are increasingly finding it difficult to resist flooding. You can imagine that the amount of migration being forced by climate change could be a uh, very substantial multiple of what it is today. And already you're getting uh, the UN uh, High Commissioner for Refugees saying that a substantial number of migrants is due to problems of drought, problems of sustainability effectively being aggravated by climate change. On a scale of, uh, of issues and concerns that we should have going forward, whether you look at terrorism or cyber terrorism or climate change, where does climate change rank on the things we should be worried about? Well, one of the most difficult things in politics is always to 
make sure that you are concentrating on the important and not just the urgent. But I think we as a government are very committed to looking longer term, uh, trying to have a horizon shift to really tackle some of the big long term issues that the UK government has not always in the past been very good at tackling. And climate change is a classical example of that. We must, must not ignore it just because it's apparently on a slower burn than the immediate threats of terrorism or some of the immediate threats that we otherwise face. It's not a problem that we can ignore. It will creep up on us uh, and we only have a relatively few number of years now before we must get a global agreement to reduce carbon emissions. If we don't get carbon emissions coming down by 2020 globally, then the chances of holding global warming to two degrees above pre-industrial temperatures, which is essentially the real danger threshold that scientists see, uh, that chance will have gone. What kind of emphasis do the British military currently put on planning for climate change problems? Well, the military is already doing a lot on climate change to try and understand the potential threats, to try and look at uh, what can be done. Uh, both the British military and the US military, it's very, the, the, the US Navy has done a lot, uh, for example, as well on uh, things like low emission uh, battleships. So the, 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 I think the, the, the military is very aware of this as a planning issue. But we are going to become more aware of it over time. And all I'm really saying is that the more our society comes under stress, from these sort of events, mass migration, climate, climatic events, the more likely it is that many of the things which we really cherish are going to come uh, under threat. Well, Christopher Lee is still with me, as is Robert Fox of the Evening Standard. Uh, Christopher, we heard Chris Hune suggest that climate change could threaten the freedoms we take for granted. Is he scaremongering or is he right? No, I mean, on one thing alone, and that's the migration of peoples throughout the world. It is one of the biggest security risks on, and threats to stability of the world that we know because of the knock-on consequences. Uh, Robert Fox, I guess one more in the long list of things for us to worry about militarily. Uh, how prepared do you think the British military are for climate change? Well, I think it's a problem, but as you've said, it's just another thing on the list. It is very important. It's a hybrid thing. It's not a military answer to this, but the military will have a role, particularly in... It's got to be a priority for an island like Britain for the security of energy and, and food. But there are very long-term things that are already started and in train, as Chris said, uh, the migration and mass movement of people. But just go back to Afghanistan. We hear about, you know, keeping al-Qaeda away and do we want it to be one of the greatest narco-economies in the world. But one of the great st strategic issues of the region is the squeeze on fresh water from the high Himalayas through the great river systems throughout the subcontinent of India. As those are getting scarcer, and they are beginning to show that, it's have, going to have huge impact. It's not only that we have to think about it, we have to think about how we think about it so we can act practically and take. But I think there is awareness of it. I think I'm not, I'm not, we're not crying at the moon on this. OK, Robert Fox of the Evening Standard, thank you very much uh, for joining us on the programme. Finally this week, when you think of Afghanistan, you probably don't think of comedy. But as the country's latest TV hit is a sitcom set in a dysfunctional government ministry. Corruption is rife and every episode has jokes about suicide bombers. Kadir Farouk is the show's star and he's not expecting too many fans among Afghanistan's ruling class. Afghan politicians don't like the truth. We're showing up all their sins. The audience will like it. 
but officials don't want to see such things. Well, Nothing Land is based on The Office, and Ricky Gervais, who created that show, has given his approval. Christopher, I don't really know quite what to make of this. What do well, you make of it? Uh, well, first and foremost, we, we shouldn't be surprised. Um, Afghanistan, the Afghan people, have a long cultural history, which doesn't get too many headlines, right? Um, and also very funny. And a lot of, especially I mean, Pashtuns, who are the ruling, or, or should be the ruling people in, in, in Afghanistan, often extraordinarily funny, whimsical people. But there is something else. This thing about the ministry is, uh, I would say, it's, if you can think of the office, yes, minister, and then add to a mix of it as Monty Python, then you've probably got it. And because you live in a society like this, uh, that is at war, a constant war, it appeals. If you go back, for example, to the Second World War in the United Kingdom, the jokes, the black humour were there in programmes like It Ma, uh, It's That Man Again with Tommy Handley, etc. And some of the great comics like Frankie Howard started their lives joking about the war. The crazy gang, Flanagan and Allen, you know, uh, who do you think you're kidding, Mr. Hitler, became the theme tune of Dad's Army. And so the whole thing goes on. Uh, it is very good, the idea of a soap. It does not only relieve tensions, it shows up some of the difficulties of society and that's the way they get rid of their tensions about it. I guess the very fact that the programme like this is able to be produced, does that uh, indicate some progress in terms of regime change or democracy? Or? No, uh, it's always going on. You know, there are books come out uh, and uh, there are uh, magazine articles, there are newspaper articles. Years ago, when I was a young man, I used to write The Archers. And at the time, we were asked if we would like to go to Moscow to do an archers-type thing in Moscow. What do you want to do that for, we said. They said, well, you know, a bit of humour, a bit of this, a bit of that. Um, I'm not sure it would happen now, but it is a great value. And after all, the archers started as a propaganda programme. It was all about blue fertiliser bags and things, and that's going back to the 1950s. They're still talking about it. I did not know that about you, Christopher, that you used to write The Archers. You've, everybody in this life, my darling, has got to have a, ha, got to have a day job. <laughs> and yours is writing The Archers. That is uh, just about it from us for this week. My thanks to Robert Fox, uh, Christopher Lee and my other guests. Don't forget you can get in touch with us anytime. Our usual email address applies, sitrep at bfbs.com. Uh, at our website, bfbs.com slash sitrep, you can listen again to the programme or sign up for our weekly podcast. I rather think we ought to be going out on the theme tune to The Archers, but we're not going to. We'll just say goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. This is Sit Rep on BFBS.